0: Our sermon reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for right now. I thank you for the time to come together as a body to worship you. I thank you for the freedom to read your word openly. And I pray that you would bless our time as Alan comes up here to bring us your words this morning. Help us to set aside the distractions and anxieties and exhaustion of the week, and to simply focus and hear what you have for us. Father, regarding all of these things, this forgiveness, uh, your holiness, uh, our insufficiency, and your ultimate sufficiency, we cry aloud and say, we believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Okay, so this is now the third week in a row that we're in these exact same verses. I I told you this is going to be a very long series. Um, And and today we're particularly just honing in on verse 20. The verse that says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Because you see, from the very beginning of uh, this sermon that Jesus is preaching, he's been laying out an entirely new kingdom that he has come to bring about. Uh, because for the Jews of that day, their religion had really become something almost entirely outward, something on the outside that you would do. Uh, Frankly, most of the people spoke Aramaic and had little access to the Hebrew scriptures, and so they relied almost entirely upon the religious professionals, the scribes and the Pharisees, to explain to them what it was that the law actually said. And everything that they told them Um, was about outward acts of holiness. Get your life together, don't look bad, and if you can clean up everything on the outside, then God will be pleased with what's on the inside. And so Jesus comes here in this sermon, and he lays out a radically new picture for his gospel kingdom. And he says, even though it's a radically new picture because of what these guys were teaching, it's a picture that all the Old Testament uh, law and prophets had promised and predicted. Everything is in harmony with what the Old Testament had said, but that these blind guides had missed. And therefore, the people had missed it as well. And so in this sermon here, Jesus gives us, I think, both an explanation of what God had always intended uh, for the law to be. In essence, this is Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments But but secondly, it was also a scathing rebuke to the religious leaders who were kind of standing at the back of the crowd eyeing him because they were the ones who had kept the people in the dark about all the things that God had said and promised. And so Jesus starts this whole sermon by saying, my kingdom is inhabited by people who know just how poor in spirit they actually are in contrast to the pride and self-justification of the religious leaders. Citizens of my kingdom, Jesus says, mourn over their sin instead of boasting about how much better they are than the sinful people around them. Citizens of my kingdom, Jesus says, are therefore meek because they realize that everything that they do have comes because of grace and not because of their superior moral living. Citizens of my kingdom, Jesus says, have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness rather than just merely an outward show of doing all the right things. Citizens of my kingdom, Jesus says, therefore, are merciful because they have been shown mercy, in contrast to the religious leaders who showed no mercy because they were proud of their own moral achievements, and therefore they didn't think they needed any mercy. And on and on and on here Jesus goes, giving them descriptions of what God's kingdom looked like that looked very little like the religious world that was played out in front of them. And so Jesus begins this particular section in verses 17 through 20, telling the people that everything that I'm telling you is in complete agreement with what the Old Testament taught. And he's telling them as if they hadn't figured this out already for themselves, everything that he's teaching them is in complete and utter disagreement with what the religious leaders had been teaching them. And so Jesus begins this new section that will actually move on for several more chapters explaining his view of the law his relationship to the law. Uh, This is the very lawgiver himself come to explain what he actually said, what what he actually meant when he gave the law in the first place. And as we've seen, he says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And Jesus, you know, he didn't come saying, look, guys, I get it. I know that the law is a hard thing to keep. And so I'm going to make it easier on you. And I'm going to replace the law and all this external coldness and hardness with grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's not what Jesus says at all. Rather, Jesus says, I came to keep the law in your place for sinners like us who could never fully obey the law on our own. But then having taken the judgment and the punishment and the guilt of our many moral failings, he says, all right, guys, now you can begin to work on obeying the law because you want to without any fear of judgment when you fail, and you will. And as we said last week, this is not a license to sin. This is not saying, hey, guys, it's all covered. Just go sin as you please out there. No, the law is still required of us. But now we can work on obeying it because we want to, because we long to be like Jesus. And our inability to keep it has no bearing on God's love for us. As we said, if grace does not motivate your heart, to want to obey, then grace has never really touched your heart. The two go hand in hand together. And so here's Jesus not only saying, I've come to fulfill the law for you, but he explains the law in ways that not only don't make it easier for us to obey, they actually make it downright impossible for us to obey because he goes on to expand the narrow constraints of the law that they were used to And see, starting next week and for several more after that, we're going to begin looking at Jesus' application where he says, sure, you shouldn't murder anybody. The Ten Commandments said that. But if you're even angry with another person, you've committed the sin beneath murder in your heart. Sure, you shouldn't commit adultery, but if you even have lust in your heart for another person, even a digital person online that's not even in front of you, you've committed the sin underneath adultery in your heart. And on and on he's going to go, and we'll develop this over the weeks ahead. And see, he's going to explain that the law was never intended to be these narrow boundaries to keep us in place, but rather they were meant to be huge, broad principles to promote life, to promote flourishing, to be a blessing to our neighbor. Now, before we start to dismantle where the religious leaders of his day went wrong, which is really the heart of our focus today, I want to talk about the major characters in Jesus' story here. First of all, you have the scribes. They're not really referred to as the scribes, but they're, they're called the teachers of the law. That's what they were. And then you had the Pharisees who were more the, the, the practitioners of the law. And the Pharisees were outwardly, at least, the, the, the holiest and most righteous people of their day. I mean, for these guys, be, holiness wasn't just a religious practice that they took on. It embodied an entire lifestyle. It consumed everything they did from the moment they got up to the moment they went to sleep. These guys were students of the law. They spent all of their time from age 12 onward doing nothing but studying and memorizing and analyzing the law of God all day long. They centered every moment of every day around finding ways to keep it and make themselves even more holier than I was yesterday. I mean, these guys were so meticulous, they went through their kitchens and pulled out 10% of all the spices on their, their spice rack, so that they could tie that to God, so they could be as holy as possible. They were scrupulous, scrupulous in their attention to the law. And so, of course, here's where Jesus' message would have been just draw, jaw-dropping to everybody who was listening, because he says, here's the ultimate in holiness— But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, my goodness. There must have just been dumbfounded silence at that. I mean, think about what's happening here. Along comes this gracious man who is a teacher of mercy and grace and forgiveness. He hangs out with sinners and outcasts. He eats dinner with tax collectors. He even invites one to be his disciple. And he touches lepers and those who are unclean with blood. And so everything about Jesus just screams love and forgiveness and grace and acceptance so that the people would have expected that Jesus would be a man who would come along and say, again, hey guys, I I know this keeping of the law thing is just too much for you. And I'm going to make it easier. We're going to replace all the harsh requirements of the law with grace. But then he turns around and drops this bombshell on them when he says... But if your holiness isn't even greater than that of the Pharisees, you're screwed. There's no hope for you. None whatsoever. And then we have the scribes. These were the guys who spent 100% of their time teaching and expounding the law as well. They gave their entire lives to the study of it, teaching it, illustrating it, and because they were scribes, transcribing it, uh, making copies of it. But what both of these groups shared in common was the idea that obeying the law um, externally could make themselves holier to God internally. That by obeying it could make them more acceptable to God. They saw the, the law is an external code to be conquered. And so what they did was two things. First of all, um, in order to, to accomplish that, they defined what these laws meant. And you see, they defined them in such a way that though it wasn't easy, I mean it took an awful lot of work, an incredible amount of effort, it could be obeyed if you really, really devoted yourself to it. And so they did things like, for example, God commanded uh, his people to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so these Pharisees said, well, how do you know if you've kept it well enough to be holy? I need to be able to gauge whether I'm in or out. And so they defined that law as meaning walking no more than 200 cubits or about five-eighths of a mile. And so what they did is they reduced the law of God to reduce what God had intended the law to be in order to justify themselves to be able to say look at me I've, I've kept it I'm within the boundaries and, and they did this with all of God's laws so they took the laws and they said we, we know this is what God meant even though he didn't say it we know this is what he meant but then secondly they they went on to add all sorts of new laws that were not in God's law that made them feel even holier laws against spitting laws against uh, about how much weight they could pick up um i'd like to keep that one um and and listen in contrast to jesus who said the entire law is summarized by these two commands love the lord your god with all of your heart soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself in contrast to that the pharisees had created a system of 613 laws 365 negative laws 248 positive laws These guys were lawyers on steroids. I mean, you remember the parable that Jesus tells of the the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee says, I I fast twice a week. Listen, that was not an Old Testament command. The the Old Testament provided for one annual fast for the Jewish people. But their philosophy was, hey, if, if one a year is good, how much holier are we gonna be with two a week? I mean, we're just up in this thing so that we can be super holy. And see, what this is hitting at for us here this morning is, I think this really strikes at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. What is true holiness? What does biblical sanctification actually look like? What is a genuine Christian? And so I want to ask those questions as we take note of where Jesus says these religious leaders went wrong. And of course, Jesus spends a great portion of his teaching undermining and contradicting and contrasting his teaching with that of the Pharisees. Um, And I just want to illustrate this with one particular parable that I mentioned earlier, the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18. Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you see, Jesus notes several things here in this parable about the Pharisees. First of all, he says they were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everybody else. And as a result, the Pharisee, he stands forward in a prominent place so everybody can see that he's there. And and he thanks God that he's not like other men. I'm not unjust like some, like this guy over here, right? I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector over there who's extorting his fellow people. And and Jesus, I think, in this parable actually concedes that point in this parable. Yes, he did obey outwardly in all those ways. Yes, he really was that good. But, Jesus says, the Pharisee missed the whole point. In fact, think about this. Jesus reserves his greatest anger and his deepest condemnation for these guys. <laughs> to be honest, it was even greater than his condemnation that he gave towards Satan when Satan came to tempt him. I mean, listen to his scathing condemnation of these guys from Matthew 23. And it goes on so long, I can't even read it all. I'll just give you a portion. "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites! "'You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven "'in people's faces.'" You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. How do you like that illustration? And see, that's just a small portion of the condemnation that Jesus heaps upon these guys. And so I think it's important for us to uncover some of the critical mistakes that they made. How did these guys miss the point of God's law? And I'll walk you through six things. First of all, Jesus says that these guys missed their need of God right? But I want you to notice that they missed their need of God, not because of their badness, but because of their goodness. Listen, we live in a southern culture that assumes it's the bad people out there who are missing God, and it's the good people who are the closest to God. But Jesus says it's actually the other way around, that you can deny God even more by being good than you can by being bad. I mean, listen, when we think of hypocrites in our culture, we tend to Think of people who say one thing, but do something entirely different in private. But these guys weren't even that hypocritical. They were the same in public as they were in private. And so his criticism was not the hypocrisy of faking it. It's the hypocrisy of claiming to be righteous when their actions betrayed how self-righteous and condescending they actually were. But you see, it was their attitude toward their own righteousness that made them unrighteous. Listen, your badness certainly can separate you from God. People can run from God's authority. You can go out and sow your wild oats. You can be like the younger son in the prodigal son's story and say, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. But, listen, your goodness can also separate you from God. Running from God's judgment by being so good and so holy and so committed to him that you don't need him as much as other people do. I mean, listen, this was the whole point behind the prodigal son parable that Jesus told. It really wasn't even about the grace that receives back the younger son who strayed, though that certainly is there, but it was about the spiritual pride of the Pharisees who were the good sons who stayed home and did their duty and would not enter the father's party. And Jesus in that parable is saying, both of these sons are lost from the father, one because of badness and the other because of goodness. But listen, here's the rub. The younger son wakes up and goes back home. And the older son doesn't Now, why. Think about this. This is so critical to this story. Because when any rebel is running away from God and the smoke of chaos is choking them to death, they know where the fire is. "I, I was really bad. I rebelled. I dishonored my father. I feel guilty. I know I shouldn't have done all these things. And so they know where home is if they want to return. But for elder brothers... Their righteousness so masks their sin, even to themselves, beneath the facade of all these good deeds so that when the smoke of of life begins to choke them out and their life is falling apart around them, they're confused, they're they're frustrated, they're angry. They say, I've I've never disobeyed God like these other people do. I, I go to church every week. How could God let such bad things happen to me? See, elder brothers, good people, moral religious people cannot find their way back home when their life starts to fall apart because they think they're already at home they think they're already there because their goodness their morality their obedience tells them I am at home but they're totally lost and they don't even know it and see it's their goodness that blinds them to their lostness so where's their hope for them Which I think is why Jesus ends that parable with the good son still outside the party, still refusing to go in. Because I think what Jesus is telling us there is that goodness is actually more dangerous than badness. Because when you're bad, you know where to repent and go home to. But when you're good, I don't know that I'm bad. I am at home. So that's the first thing. Jesus says that only those who are poor in spirit can enter the kingdom of God. All you need is need but most people don't have it listen the the better you are the less need that you think you have and that's the problem with religious people listen do you see yourself before god as desperately needy or as pretty good better than most see religious people see themselves as pretty good whereas christians see the depth of their need and therefore cry out for mercy and grace all the days of their life Now, secondly, we see here, not only did they miss their need, but the Pharisees' devotion to God was focused almost entirely outward in hopes that it would somehow translate inward. It was an outside-in kind of transformation. As Jesus uh, proclaims in in Luke chapter 16, you were the ones who, speaking to the Pharisees, you were the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. And listen, over and over and over again throughout his teachings, Jesus says that what matters is not your outward actions, but it's your heart. And it's the motivations of your heart, it's the desires of your heart. That's why he could look at the Pharisees and say, they're doing all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. Because their attitude, their motivation is all wrong. They think they're earning something rather than giving praise back to God. And again, as he goes on to condemn these Pharisees, let me give you a few more of those woes. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness." Listen, we all know that good behavior can be faked. I mean, even even Radiohead understands the deadness of fake plastic trees, right? But I mean, so much of the evangelical church today is really just teaching people how to staple fake plastic fruit to their lives. It's all about external discipline, try and look good. It's this great religious show. You know, here's the fruit of the spirit. Now go do that, staple it onto your lives Look good before the watching world. No, it's fruit, right? Fruit flows from the root, and that root is the gospel. It's not the cause of it. And Jesus says that though man might be satisfied with fake fruit, he's not fooled by it, because what he's concerned about is the heart. Listen, if you want to know what your true religion is, don't look at the creeds that you recite or the songs that you sing when you come to church. Rather, listen to your thoughts and your imaginations, especially when you're all alone, when nobody else is around. What do you daydream about getting? What experiences do you play out in your mind as, oh, that would be the perfect life. If only I could get this or get rid of that and all this scenario. What do you think about? Where does your mind go when you don't have to go anywhere? See, that is your true religion. That's actually worship. It's what you're doing. And the lusts, the the longings, the the bitterness that we hang on to, the self-doubt and the beating yourself up. Anybody can fake a decent life on the outside. But Jesus says, I'm not fooled by that. Because what I'm after is your heart. And I want from you a longing to obey. And not just a longing to not get caught looking bad. So a third problem that the Pharisees led, led them astray was that their devotion was really more toward the ceremonial aspects of the law than it was to the moral intent behind it. It, it, In many ways, I suppose it would be the modern equivalent of saying, you know, I went to church, I I fulfilled my duty, so now I can get back to living for myself. Or or maybe, hey, I fulfilled my duty, I I, I said I was sorry to them, or I said, yes, I forgive you, but I'm never going to get close to them again, ever. See, it's doing and saying all the right things on the outside publicly, but having no heart behind it on the inside. See, I've, I've forgiven them with words, but my heart is still bitter against them. And see, because we know how easily people are fooled by that, or at least how satisfied they can become with shallow, trite confessions, whether we mean it or not, we assume that God is going to be equally satisfied. But Jesus says that won't fly in his kingdom. It's not an outward show that he's after, but it's the inner transformation of a selfish heart. Listen, far too many people reject Christianity today because those who claim to be Christians are just fake hollow shells with no genuine heart change. And they can see it so clearly, right? Don't be that kind of people. Jesus says, I'm after your heart, not after looking good. Fourthly, another way that the Pharisees missed things was how they're Devotion, as I said earlier, went beyond the law to additional uh, man-made rules. And and see, when you begin to define the law according to your own interpretations of what God meant, you can make it say anything you want to. See, that was the whole point behind the parable of the Good Samaritan. If I can limit the definition of who my neighbor actually is, then the commands to love my neighbor don't actually apply to those people who don't fit my definition. And so now I don't have to love people like that. That was the whole point of the story because they had taken that law that said, love your neighbors yourself and said, well, let me define my neighbor so I don't actually have to do it. <laughs> and see, this is what Jesus addresses when he says, you have a fine way, again, talking to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And see, this is, let's, let's bring this forward a little bit. This is what Christians have traditionally done in our southern culture when they want to feel superior, when they want to feel... Uh, uh, better than all the sinners who are beneath them. You redefine holiness as, well, don't sm- smoke, don't drink alcohol, you know, wear your dresses below your ankles, depending on the decade you're in, right? Um, don't wear your hair too long if you're guys, don't wear it too short if you're women. We can, we can define all sorts of ways culturally that say that's what holiness looks like. But there's simply clever ways of trying to avoid what the law actually teaches concerning true holiness, Because, you see, if I can define holiness and limit it in these ways, then I don't really have to deal with my heart. I don't have to deal with all the lust that's in there and the anger and the discontent that rages there. Listen, so much of our religion here in Appalachia is completely taken up with this view of holiness. And Jesus says, I'm not impressed, and I'm certainly not fooled by it. You need a whole lot more righteousness than that if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. All right, here's the fifth way that the Pharisees missed the mark of holiness. It's clear from the ways that they acted that their devotion was really primarily about themselves, and it wasn't even about God. All their busy religious activities made them self-satisfied with their own level of righteousness. And clearly their ultimate goal was not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves, to gain honor and praise before both God and men. And that's why Jesus starts that parable again of the Pharisee and the tax collector saying, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, he tells this parable. Because you see, their holiness wasn't even about God. It was about themselves. It was about their own spiritual reputation. It was about their own status in the community. In fact, Jesus points that out in this parable. As he says, the the guy's prayer was only about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people right? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, a a tenth of everything I get, right? And and see, when we start to compare ourselves to others who are out there who might be doing worse things than we are, listen, Christians love to look down on the foolish rantings of particularly the liberal left. We love doing that stuff in Appalachia, as if by pointing out their stupidity, somehow we're going to be more righteous, I mean, sure, maybe you aren't teaching people that nobody can tell the difference anymore between a male and a female, as foolish as that is, but you've got your own foolishness to deal with. And you see, as Paul reminds us, it only takes one sin for you to be a lawbreaker, and so we are all lawbreakers in need of rescue. And so Jesus reminds us that your morality is not about you. It's not a way of building a testimony or a reputation that you can present to the watching world. True holiness is done for God, out of love for God, for the glory of God. Now six, there's probably more, but I'll just, I'll end on six. A final mistake that these Pharisees made was, um, was how their obsession was with themselves. And then it, it resulted in making them very condemning toward everybody else around them. Because you, you can see it in these guys, they actually got life from exposing the sins of others. They got joy from putting other people down. It brought them tremendous satisfaction to be able to judge all those that they considered to be beneath them. And of course, we do this all the time, even in the small little disagreements between you and your spouse, right? They're often tainted with, well, who was more wrong here, right? And if I can prove that they were more wrong than I was wrong, then I'll feel better about my part in this argument. This is stupid, right? And, of course, as a result, these guys had no marks of the Beatitudes in their lives. They were not poor in spirit. They were self-confident in spirit. They were not meek. They were not merciful. They were proud in spirit. Listen, moralists are always content with their own level of achieved righteousness, at least as compared to somebody else. But a Christian is never content with his or her level of righteousness. We're always frustrated with the amount of sin in our hearts, We're always longing to be more and more like Jesus because, you see, the test of holiness is not how good you are compared to somebody else or how many sins that you can avoid, but it's do you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, and do you love your neighbors yourself? And see, this is a standard of righteousness that can never leave us satisfied or content, ever. I can't ever say, yep, all right, got that one done, never, Now, as we wrap all this up, I I, I think we need to wrestle with one final question here because if Jesus is this concerned that our righteousness has to be better than that of the Pharisees, is he talking about salvation by works? Can we enter the kingdom of heaven? Can we make God maybe even more prone to answer our prayers if we can only live with a better level of righteousness than the Pharisees had? Is that what he's saying here? Well, clearly not. Uh, Because the Apostle Paul later on quotes from uh, the Psalms in Romans 3 where he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in fact, he continues on with that argument in Romans 3 where he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So clearly nobody can obey in the way that Jesus is talking about here. Except one. Because Paul goes on there and he finishes this argument by saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Listen, this is exactly what we talked about last week. Jesus came and perfectly kept the law for us so that our righteousness before God stands completely on what Jesus did, not on what we do. And he kept it so that we might now be free to pursue greater and greater obedience to it. See, the the law has always been a picture of who the God is who created us. And having been made in his image, the law is also like reading the owner's manual for our, our lives. And so of course we have to obey it. It's who our God is, it's who we are, it's what we were made to do. The problem is nobody was ever able to actually keep it. It's impossible. And so rather than dumbing down the law so that grace makes it less stringent, which is what religion loves to do, You know, it gives us the power to try and keep people in line and to make us feel better about ourselves. Listen, God comes along with the good news that says, no, I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to obey in your place so that now the legal judgment for breaking the law has been paid in full. And I do that so that you can be free to pursue deeper and deeper obedience to it out of love and longing without fear of judgment. And see, this has been Jesus' point here all along. He's saying that citizens of his his kingdom uh, have hearts that now long to seek after God. There's a desire, there's a a passion to pursue him. They, They have hearts that understand that what God requires of me is so far beyond me that only my brother Jesus could ever keep it for me. But having kept it for me, we can now get back to the business of being and doing what we were created to do, which is to glorify God with all that we have and everything that we do. And listen, as a result, unlike the legalist who is always trying to minimize the law and dumb it down to its easiest interpretations possible so that we can keep it and justify ourselves, the Christian loves the law and finds ways to expand how how great can this be, how wide can it become, because they find themselves in this lifelong journey of wanting to become more and more like Jesus. We become lovers of the law because we are lovers of God. And see, this is how your righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees. You turn, first of all, to Jesus' rescue. So that two things happen. First of all, Jesus has obeyed in my place. So it's now legally true of me. I am as holy and as righteous uh, as Jesus himself in God's eyes. And I can rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Jesus' words from the cross should be the greatest news you ever hear. It is finished, right? Everything that you need to be satisfied before God, it is finished. But then secondly now, with the pressure off, and the legal status now mine, I long for the law to be true of me experientially, in reality. And so I'm seeking to obey the law from the heart. See, not just the letter of the law, not just the minimum requirements I can get by with, but all the big things that it contains. And not just on the outside so that people will think I'm a good Christian, but on the inside, because I have a passion for being like my savior in my heart, in my thoughts, in my motivations. And I will not stop until I run out of breath and wake up with it finally being true of me in reality in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we um, confess that we often don't love your law. We often view it as something to beat. in ways that we can justify ourselves that, um, you I know, may not be perfect, but at least I'm not doing that. And we compare ourselves to others and so much so like the Pharisees, we can find our righteousness coming from what we do and from what we don't do, rather than finding it in Jesus alone. And I pray Lord that you would teach us to let go of our strivings to earn holiness so that we can strive with all of the energy that you give us to become like Jesus. Lord, it's such a bizarre concept. We we like to think that either the law is true and we have to obey it or it's been fulfilled and we're free from it, but clearly you've told us it's both. You've kept it in our place so that we can now keep it out of love for you. Lord, teach us to do that each day. Grow our love and our passion for following after you, even when nobody's around and watching and nobody ever sees or knows what we do. Give us a heart that longs to please you.